Lord, we thank you for that testimony through song, giving glory to our Lord and the cross of Christ. It's a joy to uh, come together and just uh, experience live music and see and experience Christ's beauty uh, through fellow believers, ministry of the fellow believers. We thank you. I know that requires a lot of time and practice and effort on your part. We truly appreciate your ministry to all of us this Sunday. Well, for us, it's Cornerstone, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday kind of snuck up on us. We're busy with so many things. We're immersed in uh, just um, you know, so many uh, pregnant women in the church. <laughs> so many babies come in and um, second hour service, I mean, second hour equipping hour and just getting gearing up for summer missions that somewhat snuck up on us. But it's a real joy to come together again. Um, on Resurrection Sunday, and take a break from Titus 2, just for today, and focus on the person, works, and the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been at Cornerstone for some time, you know that I love the Gospels. I love Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And spend years, studying through Matthew, years through John, and you'd be very angry with me if I went back to the Gospel of Mark or Luke to study verse by verse, um, either of those books. That is really my heart, but, you know, <laughs> there are, I need to uh, preach the Old Testament or epistles. So I figured out a way for me to uh, express and demonstrate my love for the Gospels by preaching from the Gospels every opportunity I get. On special Lord's Day services, like Easter, maybe Christmas, maybe Mother's Day, <laughs> Father's Day, I can go to the Gospels Take a break from whatever we're studying and go to the Gospels and see for ourselves just the beauty of Christ's life as is recorded by these four dear evangelists. Now, I don't know if it's the Korean blood in me, but you know, like, this, I hear that Korean drama, Korean soap operas are popular all over the world. Popular in all of Asia, even like non-Asians love Korean soap operas. All right, why is that? And you watch a little bit and you realize, man, Koreans... They know how to milk the tears. You know, they, they Koreans know drama. They know how to like every last drop of you know the tears left. They know how to milk it out of you just through their storytelling. So maybe there's some kind of like affinity towards affinity of Koreans towards drama. Maybe that's what it is. But man, I love the Gospels because of the dramatic stories that are contained within the compelling narratives, the gripping accounts, just these. Characters that come into contact with the life and ministry of Christ and their experiences and their words and their accounts are just so moving and so powerful that it really leaves an indelible mark in my heart for quite, a, quite some time after my study of these accounts. Maybe that is why I love the Gospels. This happened to me uh, maybe about a year ago um, in the, of, all, of all places during our family worship. Almost every evening we get gather together, and Elizabeth and Emma and Ethan, we gather together for family worship. Now, understand, especially a year ago, Elizabeth was four, Emma was a year and a half, Ethan was like seven months old, so it's not expositional time. <laughs> There's no really heavy theology going on, and even the songs that we sing, you know, right, I'm a man, but for my children, I'll do hand motions, right? <laughs> I'll do all sorts of things for... Lead my children in worship. One day we'll sing the hymns, you know, soberly and 
you know, just all reverentially. But for now, we do a lot of just, my God is so big and strong and mighty kind of stuff. So we're doing that, you know, and, uh, you know, one Sunday, one, one, one night, and we're going through the children's Bible. So children's Bible, it's kind of like pick and choose, right? It's not exactly chronological. So I don't know what's really coming up. And I open the Bible, and it's Luke 5, account of this paralyzed man coming to Christ. So let's read together, not the children's Bible version, but the adult version, Luke 5, 17 through 26. If you'll stand with me, let's stand together. Luke 5, 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Please be seated. Now, for many of us, this is a familiar account of our Lord healing this paralytic man, paralyzed man. As I was teaching our children through this story, it was so powerful to me. You know, astonishment gripped my heart. I was in awe of this account. Simple story, but pregnant with significance, pregnant with meaning and truth. And uh, the kids, they were kind of oblivious to it, you know. <laughs> Let's pray, and they went down. I don't know about my wife either, but for me, wow, so powerful. And it's uh, demonstrated in weeks and months that followed. Um, in terms of my personal prayer, private prayer, I would remember Luke 5, remember this paralyzed man reaching out to Jesus. The boldness, the active faith, the passion and conviction with which we are to pursue Christ. Like, this paralyzed man and his friends will not be dissuaded, will not be turned away. No matter the obstacle, he will present himself before Christ. To the point where they will go into a stranger's house, go to the roof, rip open the tiles and drop him before his feet, he will not be turned away. 
in leading praise. Pastors, we rotate and lead praise. And several times, if you were here, you remember, I had other things prepared. But in that moment of leading praise, what comes out of my mouth, really, before I even want to, is the count of Luke 5. This paralyzed man. Even in my evangelism, a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity at Long Beach State to share the gospel with a young man named Sean, sharing the gospel. And I don't really just, I don't follow some kind of, I just don't. I just share what's in my heart and what comes out. Luke chapter 5. This account of this paralyzed man and Jesus. It is a very important study. I thought, what an opportunity. Resurrection Sunday, go to the Gospels and study Luke 5 together. This story is so important, it is, written, it is recorded by all three synoptic gospel writers. Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5. That is how important it is. All of them considered it so important, they included it in their gospels. The principal characters are Jesus Christ, of course. Pharisees and teachers of the law are gathered there. And a paralyzed man and his four friends. Let's consider this paralyzed man. We're not sure exactly what caused his paralysis. We're not certain how long he has been paralyzed. But we know what it means to be paralyzed. He is unable to move. Some call this universal paralysis, which can easily bring on quick death. This may account for the extreme haste of his four friends to bring him near the Savior. His power of motion is entirely suspended, yet the faculties of his mind remain, though weakened, clearly alert, clearly able. We're not certain as to the medical reasons for his paralysis, but we know that he is paralyzed. And in a way, this might have been God's gift to him. God's grace to him. What do I mean by that? Years ago, I used to, a little bit now, but I used to listen to a lot of talk radio. You know, when you're like in teenage years, early 20s, you listen to music in the car, you know, praise songs as Christians. But as you get older, you just get older, right? And you start like, I don't know, talk radio becomes more uh, interesting. And, uh, for, for a while there, I listened to these guys, John Cobalt and Cam, Ken Champo in uh, KFI 640 Afternoon Drive. And I, my seminary, you know, I'm driving home from seminary, especially El Nino years. Man, it was like horrific traffic going through the 101 downtown L.A. I would literally take out the newspaper and read it on the 101. <laughs> I mean, it was like that's how backed up it was. So and I'm coming from seminary after NTI with Professor Thomas. I don't want to listen to a sermon, right? <laughs> I'm being honest here. I don't want to listen to any more uh, theology or revival. I want to listen to things that I don't have to memorize. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm listening to talk radio, and these guys are witty, sharp. They just they never stop talking. And I think it was Ken, or no, John Cobell was saying how um, he he likes to constantly have distractions in his life. He has to be bombarded with entertainment, music, or media. He always has to have something immersed with things to do. Because when he stops and he thinks, he gets depressed. 
when there is quietness, or when there is when he's still, when he pauses, and there's nothing to do except to think, he starts to think about the meaning of life, the purpose of his, ex- his existence. He was being very honest. He starts to, starts to ask the ultimate questions of life, and it really brings him down. So he forces himself to be busy. And that's, we can understand that, right? Sometimes that happens to us. Like we get sick. We get a cold or a flu. Some kind of infection. We, we lie in bed and we're so sick we can't even read. We're so sick we can't even watch sports. Right? That's how sick you guys are sometimes. Right? Can't watch sports. All you can do is close your eyes, you know, wrap a towel around your face and can't even sleep and you're alone with your thoughts. And you think, wow, you know, this is a gift. Right? God is stopping me here. I can't do work. I can't study. I can't do anything except be alone with my thoughts and pray to God. And you start to look at your life from a different perspective. Well, imagine this man. You're paralyzed. And your family comes by and care for you. Your friends come by and care for you. But, I mean, you're just there. You can't move. You're alone with your thoughts. i got to say to this man, in a way, it was God's gift to him for him to consider his own soul, consider his own heart, and for him to cry out and appeal to his four friends to take him to be with Jesus, to be presented before the Lord. As this man was being lowered down in the courtyard before Christ, I'm sure everyone saw and had pity for him. I'm sure the Pharisees looked upon him with maybe compassion, most likely pity, felt sorry for him. But we find out through Luke's account that they were feeling sorry for the wrong person. The object of their pity was uh, should have been themselves rather than this man. In fact, they should have had holy envy, holy jealousy of this man. And maybe for many of us here, or some of us here, or a few of us here, we should have that same approach. Instead of looking upon this man with pity, we should be pitiful, feel sorry for ourselves, because we see his holy faith. We see genuine faith, which is so rare in this world. Remember Christ said that? When the Son of Man returns, will he find true faith on earth? It is a rare thing. And this man, by God's grace, possessed genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Something that the Pharisees did not have. Many of the crowds did not have. But this man possessed it. So for all of us, let's humble ourselves. Let's look at this man. Let's consider his faith. We have so much to learn from. Consider marks of genuine faith. Five marks of genuine faith. Five marks. The first mark of genuine faith I find in this man is that genuine faith opens one's eyes to rightly see his greatest need in life. Genuine faith opens your eyes to rightly see your greatest need in life. Let me ask you, what is your greatest need in life? 
If God said to you, brother or sister, whatever you want, one thing I'll give to you right now, whatever it is, I'll grant to you, how would you answer? What were you most worried about yesterday? What kept you up this week? What has dominated your thoughts or was oppressive to your heart because of worry? What makes you or made you most anxious this past week or month or year or your whole life? If God could, would grant you one thing, what would you ask me? Would it be money, you know, fame, power, you know, just marriage, children, whatever? Would it be these things? Well, that's the testimony of false faith. False, false faith is focused on physical needs, temporal needs, It's focused on relief from present pain. Relief from present pain. True faith. Your eyes are open to see your greatest need. That the greatest need of our lives is the forgiveness of sins. That's the greatest need for us. Now, all these years, studying Matthew 9, Mark 2, Luke 5, I wrongly believed, I wrongly presumed that this man came to Christ to be healed. That he came to Christ and these men, these friends, lowered him to Christ so that he might be able to walk again. Because of my self-centered, man-centered bias, I wrongly presumed that. I just self-centered. I thought to myself, that would be so hard to be paralyzed. That would be so difficult. If, if that was me, I would want nothing more than to be able to walk, than to run, than to jump, to be a whole man physically. That is why I would come to Christ. I wrongly perceived this motivation in this man. After a more careful study, I am compelled to believe that, listen, he is not a paralyzed man who came to Christ to be healed. But he is a man who came to Christ for his sins, who happened to be paralyzed. Right? He is a man, a person, a sinner, just like God, who came to Christ. His paralysis is secondary. He himself doesn't define himself with this medical condition. His self-image is not formed by his external situation, his external limitation. His first and foremost view of himself is in light of his many sins. Others view him externally, and the first thing they see is a paralyzed man. He sees himself and doesn't see himself as a paralyzed man. He sees himself, the inner man, first and foremost, as a sinner in need of God's grace. I do this all the time, right? We see a handicapped person, and rather than we seeing a person... An individual who happens to have some limitations. We see a handicapped person and we define that person by his physical limitations. Rather than a person who just happens to be handicapped. I believe the reason he's here, the reason his friends lowered him was for his soul, not his body was for eternal life, not for his earthly life. 
I gotta defend this. I have to defend this. Three reasons why I believe this. First of all, our Lord's answer to this man, our, our Lord's first response to this man. The man is Lord before Christ. The man does not say anything, but our Lord is the heart knower. He is the heart searcher. Throughout the Gospels, He perceives people's hearts, even later on. Right? He perceived the hearts of the Pharisees, teachers of the law. Right? Uh, another account in Luke, with the man with the shriveled hand on Sabbath, He perceived, knew the heart of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. John 2.25, He knew what is in the heart of man. He knows what is in a man's heart. He is omniscient as God in flesh. And so immediately, our Lord knows why He's here. And He doesn't say, rise up and walk. Our Lord came to serve, not to be served. When anyone came to Him for healing, what did He do? He healed. Right? He healed. If they were hungry, He gave them bread. If they were thirsty, He gave them water. Right? If they needed ministry, He ministered to them. If they needed healing, hundreds and thousands of people were healed day after day after day by Christ. When they asked for healing, they got healing. This man, what did he ask for? Well, we know by the answer, it's like a telephone call. We don't know what the person on the other line is saying, but we can hear what this person is answering. And by the answer, we can guess as to the question. And the answer was, man, your sins are forgiven you. So the question must have been, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Right? Doesn't that make sense? I believe this man was heavy, had a heavy heart. As he comes to the presence of Christ, like Peter, Lord, away from me, a sinful man. Peter wanted to lo- run away when he was with, before Christ because he, he could viscerally s- sense the, the thrice holy God, the Messiah, in his presence. So he wanted to run away, but the paralyzed man can't run away. He is trapped, he is stuck before God's holy presence. And his heart is heavy because he understands Isaiah 59.2 that our sins have separated God from us. Isaiah 64.6 All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. He understands Jeremiah 14.7 Our sins testify against us. Our backsliding is great. We have sinned against you. Here is Christ. He has a window to this man's soul and he sees all his sins and the paralytic wants to run away. He wants to hide because of the shame of his sins and he knows Christ perceives it clearly. His heart is heavy. That's when Mark's account, Matthew's account, Matthew 9.2, Matthew records this one brief clause that Luke or Mark does not include. It says, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven you. Our Lord said it. Luke didn't include it. Mark didn't. But Matthew included it. Our Lord was encouraging his heart. Take heart. I know your sins. But don't be afraid. Don't desire to depart. Your sins are forgiven you. So by the answer, I believe that is why. That was the question that this man posed. Secondly, it says Jesus saw their faith and he forgave this man of his sins. Now, I'm just going to summarize this. Um, when, when people came to Christ, 
He would ask them, what do you want? Matthew 9, 27, two blind men. Jesus said, do you believe I'm able to do this? Yes. Then you can see you're healed. Matthew 20, 30, more blind men. Jesus asked them, what do you want me to do for you? We want to see. He gave them sight. Other times, Jesus healed the sick at the request of others, by the faith of others. Right? Uh, John 5, the royal official, my servant is sick. Right? My servant doesn't have faith in you, but I have faith in you. Will you heal him because of my request? Right? Uh, Matthew 22, 22, a man who was possessed by demons, blind and mute. Jesus, on his own compassion, out of his own compassion, heals this man. Right? Matthew 8, Similarly, centurion, servant, he's paralyzed. He's in terrible suffering. A centurion comes, will you heal him? The servant has no faith. Servant is not asking. But the centurion, on, the be- on behalf of his servant, asks Christ. And we do this all the time. We pray for one another. Right? We pray for healing. Even for unbelieving family members or friends. And God heals, answers our prayers. Not because they have faith, but because of our faith, because of our prayers. James 5.16 but our God never forgives someone because of someone else's faith. Right? Our God never forgives someone apart from personal faith and personal repentance. I can't believe for you. I can believe for you in terms of sickness, in terms of some other need. I can pray for you, non-believers as well. But if you don't have faith, if you don't cry out to God, if you don't repent and trust in Christ, I can't have faith for you, for Christ to forgive you. So, Christ saw their faith. But undoubtedly, their faith was united in this one request for the forgiveness of sins. Does that make sense? Right? If these men brought him for healing, or brought him for salvation, but this man wanted healing... This man couldn't receive forgiveness of sins because of someone else's faith. It had to be his own faith. He trusted in Christ. And thirdly, third reason I believe why this man came for his soul, not his body. He, our Lord tells us that. Verse 24, verse 23, which is easier to say. Uh, we'll talk about this later, but they, this man is blaspheming. How can he say, forgive, your sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive, his, forgive sins. And that's right. They're orthodox in that statement. So our Lord said, okay, you're talking about authority. You're saying, what right do I have to forgive sins? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? No doubt. <laughs> Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Anybody. And right now, a lot of people say that. Right? A lot of churches, institutions, right? people just make up religion, your sins are forgiven. What is hard is to paralyze man, rise up and walk. So Jesus said, I'll say what is hard. I'll say what is impossible to man, rise up and walk. And this man gets up and walks. Now, why did he say that? Verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I see you rise, pick up your bed and go home. Our Lord didn't say it because this man asked, I'm healing him. I'm healing him. To show you who has the authority, who has the power. Our Lord healed this man so that he might confront his enemies and demonstrate his authority as God. He performed this miracle for his own glory. Now it is very possible 
that this man didn't come for that at all. He didn't come for his paralysis. He came for his sins. And so for him, oh Lord, I appreciate, you know, I, I, I guess I'm thankful the added benefit that I didn't really ask for. I'm just thankful for the forgiveness of my sins. But, well, thank you anyways, right? I'm thankful. Right? Unbelievers, for them, it's un- unthinkable. Un- this is an unacceptable proposition that someone would come to Jesus apart from a self-centered motivation. For unbelievers, they believe they see right through Christians. And it's true. So many Christian, the Christianity in America, pop Christianity is so man-centered. It's true. They see the angle where everybody's coming to Christ for their vested interest, for self-centered motivations. And so it's like, oh, you're going to church for, you're going to Christ because you want, you want to derive benefit, the fringe benefits of Christianity. You're not in it for Christ. You're in it for the healing. You're in it for the prosperity. You're in it for the fame. You're in it for personal gain. And a lot of, much of Christianity today is known for that. But true Christianity isn't, right? True Christians, when we go to Christ, we don't say, God, you know, can you give me this job? And if you want to forgive my sins, that's great. But can I have this job? You know, can I have this happy life? Can I have this you know, great marriage? Or can I have perfect kids? Or can I have this amount in my bank account? And oh, by the way, yeah, I'll take the cross too and I'll take forgiveness. No, true Christians say, Lord, Christ alone, the cross of Christ, my soul, forgiveness of sins, and nothing else. I love Christ. I want to carry the cross, deny myself, and follow you, follow you to Calvary. And if God does heal us, right? Wow, thank you, Lord. But that's not why I followed you, right? You know, I was talking to uh, Pastor Bhagajan from Kazakhstan just this week, and he was telling me how he's going through persecution, you know, Shimkan, the Muslim area, Kazakhstan. You know, a few years ago, I remember talking to Bakajan. He was saying, yeah, Kazakhstan is a democracy. I'm thinking, it's not a democracy. That's how, like, brainwashed they are. Even, like, the leaders there think it's a democracy. When media is controlled by the president's daughter, that's not a democracy. And when he extended his term by many, you know, many times, that's not a democracy. Well, <laughs> you know, like, his dictatorship is, is, is it's, it's just, it's growing. It's, it's oppression of, of, of faith. Christian faith is growing. And he's experiencing persecution. And he's ministering in a Muslim context to a small church, and it's hard. And I'm uh, Skyping here, and I'm in my, you know, it's 80 degrees outside in California. I'm having my little vanilla nut coffee. I'm Skyping uh, at the church house, church office. And we're talking, and our situations are so different. We both, by God's grace, were saved, following Christ. But he ends up in Shimken, Kazakhstan. I end up in Orange County, California. That's God's will. But, God forbid, I followed Christ and said, God, give me, I want to be a pastor, I want to have a good wife, good children, you know, this kind of like lifestyle, and I want to live here, and oh, by the way, you know, forgiveness as an, as an you know, extra credit, that'd be great, as an addendum, you know, that's fine. But if you send me to Shim Kent, oh, I'm not going to follow you. No. 
right? Unbelievers is unthinkable. It's unconscionable. They think believers must have a personal angle, personal agenda. But see, that is not true faith. True faith, we don't follow Christ for reasons other than Christ himself. We don't think about what's in it for me. We know the greatest need of our lives is forgiveness of sins. And that is why we embrace Christ. That is why we follow Christ. And that is the church. And the church, we exist for that. We gather together as a church because all believers here acknowledge my greatest need is my, my soul. My walk with Christ. Forgiveness of sins. That's the main thing. Some churches, they cater to false faith. Yeah, we know you're not really here for your soul. So we'll provide entertainment. We'll provide fellowship. You're lonely, we'll provide friends for you. Right, you don't have peers, we'll have peers for you. Right, you like golf, we'll have golfing ministry, bike riding ministry, kayaking ministry, right, basket weaving ministry. Right, we'll cater our ministry towards your physical needs. And when you get around to it, will you consider your soul? That's not the Church of Christ. And God forbid that would ever happen to Cornerstone. That we are gathered here as believers because we see by faith that all these temporal things are secondary, are peripheral, our greatest need is relationship with Christ, eternal life, forgiveness of our sins. That is why we, we gather. That is why we love one another. That is why we exist. We Praise God for forgiveness. We exalt through all our trials, all our pain and suffering, our joy. It's Psalm 32.2. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Whatever we're going through, I am the most blessed man because God does not count my sins against me. He has covered over my iniquities. Secondly, Second mark of genuine faith, genuine faith rejects those purported authorities, supposed authorities who rely on obedience to the law for righteousness. That's a long sentence, right? Genuine faith rejects those supposed authorities who rely on obedience to the law for righteousness. So they reject Pharisees. They reject religious authorities pronounced their righteousness because of their external behavior. The Pharisees were all about that. The priests, their center of activity was the temple, sacrifices. So priests understood that it's not my righteousness that earns me merit before God, but it's God's sacrifice, my substitute, slain for my sins that makes me righteous. The Pharisees, their focus was a synagogue. Rabbinical Judaism comes from the Pharisees. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. What remained was the synagogue scattered throughout the world. And Rabbinical Judaism is centered on the written and oral law. And so we are made righteous through achievement, through works, through good deeds, through things done in the flesh. Obedience, knowledge and obedience to the law is how we are made righteous. They confuse... Exodus and Leviticus. See, Exodus is redemption, God's work. Leviticus is sanctification, our work. But they reverse it. They've made 
Leviticus, God's work. And redemption, our work. Redemption is what we must do to achieve righteousness. And so they're all about externals. They're all about tradition, all about rituals. You can spot a false teacher. You can spot these peddlers of the flesh a mile away because they're, they're focused. They're, they're, they're fixated on externals, especially the size of their hats, right? The larger the hat, larger the heresy. That's my simple formula, right? If you see a guy with a large hat, with a robe, false teacher, right? Heretic, right away. All right? They're focused on elaborate external rituals and traditions and councils and creeds. And they're focused on the building. They're fixated on the elaborateness of the building, the size, decoration. False teacher, false teachers. So these Pharisees of Perishim were focused on that to a staggering degree. They tried to establish their own righteousness. So for them, they saw no value in Jesus' righteousness. They didn't have, need a substitute. They didn't need to have so God impute righteousness to them. They had their own righteousness through the works of the law. And so they covered themselves with all this, this system, this false system of religious works. And they believed their external righteousness. They believed their press and they were deceived. They thought they were righteous because of their externals. But their sins remain. And in fact, because of these outward righteous deeds, they prided themselves, boasted in themselves against God. God considered them sins as well, filthy as well. So their sinfulness just grew. Right? They weren't becoming more righteous. They were becoming more sinful. They were white on the outside, but they were not clean on the inside. Uh, this just brought up to me a few, I mean, last year, I, I found, I had a weird opportunity, just God just organized it, where we, we, we went on vacation to Monterey Bay with friends in the church, and, uh, you know, I got to mention Donald because he's in the story, so, you know, he was like a tour guide, man, master tour guide, so if you ever have any questions, call Donald, I'm just kidding, right? Man, a good host, showed us around Monterey, went on this long hike, I don't know, somewhere by the beach, I don't know, I right, asked Donald after. <laughs> And so we're coming upon a rock, and they'll come upon this side of a hill, right, right by the Pacific Ocean. And there was this, like a small mountain, a huge rock or a small mountain, you choose, in the ocean, and it was completely white. And it was such a contrast to the blue ocean, this white stone protruding in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. We were like, that is so beautiful, right? So Sue and I took a picture next to the rock. We got our daughters next to the rock. Right, so some other people take a picture, and then Donald's like, "You guys know why that rock is white?" I'm like, "Why? You know, isn't that God's creation? No, amazing." <laughs> no, it's because of hundreds and thousands of birds that are gathered around it, <laughs> 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's bird droppings piled on weeks, months, years. It's covering that rock. That's why it's white. Can't you smell it? <laughs> like, oh, our paradigm changed completely. What was once beautiful was gross. All those pictures in our digital camera, delete, delete, delete. We don't want to take pictures next to, you know, bird poo, right? Well, that's 
the Pharisees. Right? Externally pure. Externally clean, pleasant to look at. But it's not the righteousness of Christ. It's the filthy works of man trying to be righteous. And God considers that filthy. Right? What about you today? Are you still deceived? Are you still trying to be righteous? Your pride is such that you want to boast in yourselves. You don't want to boast in the cross. You don't want to trust in Christ. You want to trust in yourself. You want to be in control. You don't want, let, you don't want to let God be God and let Him have mercy. You want to achieve righteousness because you are in control. Are you still striving? Are you still working to be righteous instead of resting in Christ? Romans 3.20 By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Romans 3.27 What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Romans 7.10-13 That is why when the law came, the very commandment that promised life proved death to me. Why, what happened? For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, the law of God deceived me and it killed me. What does this mean? That, did that which is good bring death to me? No, it was sin producing death through that which is good, the law of God, so that sin might be shown to be sin. Christ, Romans 10.4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, do we not see the law is given to us not to, not to make us righteous, but to lead us to Christ, to point us to Jesus Christ. Galatians 3, 23-24. Galatians 3, 23-24. But before faith came, NAS, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law became our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Justified by faith. The law is not given so that to save us. The law is given so that He might prod us towards Christ. So, a man or woman who has true faith rejects, shuns, is unimpressed by the external righteousness of religious, quote, authorities. A man or woman with true faith sees through the facade of external righteousness and understands that rock is white because of excrement. It's filthy. A man with true faith, a woman with true faith, sees through that and rejects these false authorities. That is why the paralyzed man was Lord before Christ, not before the Pharisees. They weren't clamoring for the teachings of the law. They clamored to be with Christ because genuine faith sees through that act, that old act. They they know the emperor has no clothes. The religious leaders have no righteousness. Third, Third mark of genuine faith is that it relies solely in faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Solely in faith in Christ. Faith alone. Notice There are no preconditions for this paralyzed man to receive forgiveness of sins. Well, he couldn't do anything. That's the perfect picture. That's why he's the perfect picture for us. 
We were spiritually dead. Spiritually, we were paralyzed. We were helpless to do anything. This man is helpless to do any good work. So perfect illustration to show us that we are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, through Jesus Christ alone. All that is required of us is to cry out in faith, to trust in Christ, to cry out to God, to ask based upon not our righteousness, but on God's grace, on God's mercy. This was what, just kind of jumping to Luke 15, the prodigal son, the two sons. Remember one son went and spent everything, all of his dad's money. The other older son stayed. And when the younger son came back, the father, instead of slapping him, right, instead of beating him up for squandering his wealth, embraces him and, and the, the younger son said, I'm not worthy to be your son. I, I, make me a slave. No, puts a ring on his finger and brings him into his household again. What God, the older son, so angry was, that's it? That's all you do? This idiot goes away and takes half your money, dishonors you, squanders it in sinful living, comes back, and all he needs to do is return to you and you accept him? No! May that never be! Make him jump through some hoops. Make him come to church for one year. Right? Make him give 10% for an X amount of months. Right? Make him do some things to earn his way back into the family. Don't just give it to him as a gift. Pointing to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were in the audience. They were listening. They were not rejoicing when the tax collectors and sinners were going to Christ. And that older son was a representative of the Pharisees. They were angry. That God was so gracious, so merciful, so forgiving. And our, our Lord was saying, that's how merciful our God is. That's how loving God is. All is required for the forgiveness of sins is faith. Faith in Christ. Look at the plural. Your sins are forgiven. All your sins. All your sins, past, present, and future, every last sin we will ever commit in our lives is forgiven through Christ on the cross by faith alone. Simply by trusting Him, by calling out to Him, by thrusting ourselves in the mercy and grace of God. Our many sins against God, our sins against His righteous laws, our sins against the gospel, our sins against other people are forgiven. All manner of sin and blasphemy, murder, adultery, theft, fornication, blasphemy, yes, and one by faith. And one sudden sweep of the divine wave of mercy, they are all washed away. Our sins are red as crimson. They're red as scarlet. By faith, we are made white as white as snow. The first mark of genuine faith is we, our eyes are open to see the greatest need. We do not respect religious authorities. We reject them. Thirdly, we rely solely in Christ by faith for the forgiveness of our sins. Fourthly, the object of genuine faith is the words of Christ. Words of Christ. Note that the pardon for sin, all is man's sins, came in a single sentence. Five words. Man, your sins are forgiven. 
Five words. That's it? What is our faith fixed on? It's fixed on the words of Christ. Jesus is the authority. He is God. And He said it. He said. He promised anyone who believes in His heart and confesses Jesus as Lord. The Holy Spirit is inspired in Romans. He shall be saved. Our Lord didn't have to go through an elaborate ritual. Right? He didn't have to like light candles and you know, burn smoke and incense and all kinds of you know, tasks to procure this man of forgiveness of sins. All he had to do is your sins are forgiven. Be gone. And this man, true faith, is focused on the words of Christ. See, for, with false faith, miracles are never enough. Right? For the Pharisees, it was never enough. Teachers of the law, never know. The crowds, they, they ate, right? They had their fill. They saw miracles and miracles and miracles. But they always said, I need one more miracle. I need one more proof, one more evidence. False faith is never, never satisfied. True faith. See, this was before his healing. True faith takes Christ at his word. God's word is enough. God's word is enough. Right? Right. Two illustrations from the scriptures. Luke 16, the rich man of Lazarus. There's another Lazarus in John, John 11. Luke 16, Lazarus was a poor man, a beggar, a rich man, and he had no mercy upon Lazarus. He goes to Sheol. He's, he's in torment in the presence of Abraham. And he says, can you ask Lazarus to dip one finger in water and give me a drop of water to leave me of my pain? And Abraham says, no, there's a great chasm that separates where Lazarus is and where you are. And he said, well, I have five brothers. Let me go back and warn them. Let me rise from the dead, not for my own sake, and warn my brothers of the truth of the Bible. And what did Abraham say? 1631, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The hear is the Hebrew mindset. And the Hebrew mindset, hear and obey is the same thing. Listening and obeying. If they don't listen, they don't obey the Bible, no miracle is enough for their faith. You could rise from the dead and they still will not believe. False faith. True faith takes Jesus' words, the Bible's words, at its face value. John 5, second illustration. We, we, we studied through that, remember? The royal official whose servant was in pain. Our Lord said, quite a distance away, your servant is healed. The royal official took Jesus at his word and left. That's true faith. We read the Bible. We take it at its face, face, face value. And that is the object of our faith. Number five, final one. Genuine faith obeys Christ. Genuine faith obeys Christ. Our Lord told them to prove his authority, demonstrate his authority, rise up and walk. Verse 25, immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and he went home glorifying God. True faith obeys. 
simple. False faith. It's like Matthew 7. They're focused on externals. They want to look righteous to others. So they don't focus on the foundation. They just focus on the, the painting, the decoration. When the storm comes, it is destroyed. The house comes collapsing, crashing down with a great crash. True faith, they don't care about others. They don't care about decoration. They don't care about looking righteous. They're concerned about it's about being righteous before God. They focus on the foundation. Where's the foundation? They do what God's word tells them to do. They obey Christ. They obey God's word. So when the wind and storm comes, the house remains. True faith. Right? Obeys Christ. Do we not envy this man? Do you not say to yourself in your heart, Oh, I wish that I was as obedient as this man. Oh, that I would just obey Scripture. Oh, that God would give me true faith where I take God's word at its face value and I obey Christ. Even though, let's say this man was paralyzed all his life. He doesn't know what it is to get up. He doesn't know. He's never, he doesn't know what it is to walk, to move. Or he's forgotten it's been so long. Right? His, his self-image is such that Though physically he might be able to move, I mean, psychologically, emotionally, mentally, it could seem impossible. Yet he fights through all of that. He believes not in himself and his abilities. He believes in Christ's words. Christ says, rise. He rises. Get up. He gets up. Walk. He walks. Take your mat. He takes his mat. He goes home glorifying God. Oh, do you say in your hearts, God, give me such faith. Give me such trust in your promises where I don't believe my experience. I don't believe my sins. I don't believe my own heart. I don't believe my flesh. I don't believe my environment. I will believe in your promises, in your scriptures, and I will obey you. Our greatest need is to have our sins forgiven. Our sins are surely great. Ecclesiastes 7.20 There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Our greatest need in this world is to have our sins forgiven. Do you realize? Psalm 65.3 When we were overwhelmed by our sins, you forgave our transgressions. Psalm 79.9 Help us, O God, our Savior. Deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. That was the cry of the psalmist. Psalm 133 and 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Therefore I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord, and His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7, Therefore says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Our Lord. That is why He came. Not for our physical needs, but for our, our soul. He came to forgive us of our sins. If you would reach out to Him. If you call upon Him. Matthew one twenty one. His name will be Jesus because He will save His people from sins. John one twenty nine. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was raised for our justification. Ephesians 1.7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ also suffered for our sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. That He might bring us to God. 1 John 3.5. You know that He appeared to take away our sins. Revelation 1.5 To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. We all have faith. Every one of us. The only question is, is it true faith, genuine faith, or is it false faith? faith? Is it counterfeit faith? Do you rightly see your greatest need in your life? What profits a man if he enters hell with lots of money? What profits a man if he enters into hell for eternity with a great GPA, with lots of friends, having enjoyed pleasures of this world for a short time? What profits him? Are you in the thick of thin things? Are you majoring on the minors? Are you so deceived by your false faith that you do not know that your greatest need is for your own heart, your own soul. Will you care for your own soul and go to Christ for the forgiveness of sins? Will you pray to Christ today and ask God to have mercy upon you? You can't demand mercy. You can't demand grace. But because you're forsaking righteousness to the law, will you plead for mercy? Do you rely on works to receive forgiveness? Are you fixated on performance? Doing things to please God? Do you think that God is angry with you and that only way His anger can be appeased is by doing something or doing some things? Or do you rest in the finished work of Christ on the cross by faith? Relying solely in Christ for the forgiveness of all your sins. Paul did that. Philippians 3, he considered all his works of the law, scubalon, excrement, rubbish. He compared, considered it as lost as compared to knowing Christ. He abandoned all efforts, all hopes of personal righteousness through works and abandoned himself, trusting Christ. What is the object of your faith? Is it in the scriptures? Is it in the promises of God's word? Is it faith in faith? Faith in experience? Faith in emotion? I had a person tell me years ago, he knows he's a Christian because he felt electricity one day when he was praying to Christ. I'm like, excuse me, brother, what verse is that? What chapter verse is that? Electricity. Let me get my concordance out and look for that in the scriptures. Talk about false faith. Is your faith in yourself or is it in the scriptures? For apart from scriptures, you have no hope. And do you have the kind of faith that obeys Christ? Do you? Do you? You know your heart. God knows your heart. Or James one twenty two. Or I, I, James two nineteen. Right? Demonic faith. They believe God, and they tremble. They're not saved. Why are they not saved? Because these demons don't obey God. 
They are hearers of the word and so deceive themselves. They do not do. James 2.26 You foolish person, do you not know that faith apart from works is useless? We're not saved by works, but we're saved to work. And these works testifies the validity of our genuine faith. Works always follow true faith. Obedience always follows genuine faith. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you have a faith that does not obey, it is a dead faith. It is a false faith. Are you now, as I, envious of holy jealousy to to this man? Let's consider this paralyzed man being paralyzed physically but not spiritually. He was running, his heart's enlarged, running in the path of God's command without hindrance. We can barely keep up with him. Will you go to Christ now? Call upon him by faith. Christ promised in John 6:37, All that the Father will come to me, whoever comes to me, I will not drive away. He promised that. If you go to Christ, he will not turn you away. He will not send you away. With arms wide open, he will receive you. If you cry out to him, he will answer. He will be true. Let's pray. God, what a wonderful, beautiful story know that one day we will see this man in heaven. We will worship you with him and with millions of other men and women that you saved by faith. And Lord, we will not boast. Boasting is completely excluded. We will exalt in you. We will exalt in the cross. We will boast in your crucifixion and in your resurrection, for you did it all. You gave us faith. You justified us by this faith. And you will glorify us one day, all by, by, through faith and grace. Lord, we pray that the word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will open eyes this morning. Eyes that are closed, you will open eyes that have been dimmed by the worries and cares of this world will be opened again to see the glory of the cross and how in Christ alone is our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray.